Smuggling Hope, Episode 23, Unmedicated Adventures in Depresso Land. If what I feel were equally distributed to the whole human family, there would not be one cheerful face on earth. Whether I shall ever be better, I cannot tell. I awfully forebode, I shall not. To remain as I am is impossible. I must die, or be better, it appears to me. Abraham Lincoln. Now, Lincoln is a fascinating character because he had really two major episodes of what they called back then melancholy, which we would say would be major depressive disorder by our current psychological standards. And literally, he had to have friends and family by his side 24-7 so as to make sure that he did not kill himself. And we'll talk a little bit about Lincoln later, but essentially, he really did not kill himself because he believed himself to be here to serve a purpose higher than himself. And in some ways, he believed that his depression or his melancholy was actually something that he needed in order to tolerate and be the president of the United States at a time where it was trying to tear itself apart. He believed almost that no other man, no other president at least, could tolerate the the civil war that the country was experiencing if he had not experienced as much grief and uh, sadness as he had, had experienced in his life. Now, we'll get back to Lincoln later. And obviously, like Lincoln existed and lived in a time where there were no pharmaceutical uh you know, you know, you know, uh, medications to treat, um, depression. And I'm not against medication. Um, just to, 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 at the outset here, explain the research is very clear about medication, that medication works best for those it works best for, meaning that those individuals that believe that medication will assist them, they're going to do much better with medication than those who do not believe medication is going to help them. For the sheer logic that if you believe a medication is going to help you, that placebo effect enables you to be more compliant with medication and also allows you to be consistent with medication where the latter would not be. So I want to make sure that we're, I'm not opposed to medication. In some cases, I would give my left hand to make sure people take them. But I do not prescribe medication. Um, That is not what my license allows. And there are many people that don't find it helpful to take medication, either because they've got um, biological issues with medications, they can't tolerate them, or they have other medications that are counteractive, or they can't tolerate the side effects. And, and frankly, I think that, you know, people should recognize that there are other ways that we are, you know, that people do get better and people do get better with their depression in, in remarkable ways, um, not just with antidepressants. So with that, I'm going to jump into two key uh, myths about um, depression. And number one, the first myth is that the cause of depression is known and that the only treatment for depression is an antidepressant. Now, the truth is that this is false. Um, we, If you go into the, the, the real research about depression, you'll find that um, there is nobody that really can tell us what the cause is, right? The, 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 the cause is really not determined. There are theories about it, but the causes of depression are not known. Um, and realistically, you know, sometimes people will say that there's a genetic factor. Well, there's a genetic factor to pretty much everything. Um, Brian Welser, who is the CEO of Gene Discovery Program, uh, Perlogene Sciences, he had said that uh, even in the most common diseases, 
specific genes are almost never associated with more than 20 to 30% chance of getting sick. Meaning that obviously, you know, that obviously there's a genetic component, but you can't, you know, say that things are just um, genetically based. Um, there is a vulnerability that your genes or your biology puts us into, but to say that genetics is the reason why we're depressed is just not, you know, a fair um, assessment. Believe it or not, the strongest predictor of major depression is still your life experience. You know, you know, obviously the genes will make you more vulnerable. Um, you know, and, and but that's but that doesn't mean that it's a determinant, right? The second uh, myth is that the causes you know, determine the intervention, right? So that the, obviously antidepressants are the only effective treatment and they're all that's needed, right? Um, that's all that's needed. If you take a pill, you'll feel better. I think most people are aware that that's probably not, maybe that's too uh, shallow of an answer. So instead what we do is, you know, sometimes like we, you know, we, in the, well, in the, can the case of cancer, for the most part, we start to intervene in the process. You know, we don't fixate so much on the cause, right? So with cancer, we're not so fixated on whether or not you lived under a power line or you, you got exposed to some kind of, uh, you know, stressor. We, we want to intervene in the process of, of cancer. That's how most of the medications and the, you know, the way that we intervene now medically in cancer in the United States, we, we disrupt the process. And the same thing can be thought about with, uh, you know, sickness like depression, right? So uh, we don't really want to just, well, you know, so, so you know, again, if we believe that depression is genetically based, well, there must be like, we have to take a medical intervention, right? Um, so again, uh, just, just, you know, just so that we're all kind of on the same page, those are myths and nobody knows what the answer is, you know, or where the origin of depression came from. We know that there are as many forms of depression as there are people. Um, and, uh, you know, Statistics, real quick, um, depression has increased rapidly. Um, it increased 300% between 1987 and 1997. Holy cow, that's almost almost uh, 30 years ago at this point, almost, what, 20-something years ago. You know, and the population with depression grew from 2.1% to 3.7% in the early 2000s. That was an increase of 76%. The use of antidepressants tripled from 1988 to 2000. I'll say that again. In the early 2000s, the increase, you know, of 76%, you know, right? Pretty much a lot of people are, have been on antidepressants. Um, you know, currently the, the, the Gallup poll within the last couple of years, you know, conducted that about 18% of adults, more than one in six, say they are depressed or receiving treatment for depression a jump of more than seven percentage points since 2015 um, when the Gallup started to, uh, you know, uh, calculate this. Um, and again, some of this is, you know, it's even on mainstream news, right? So it must be true, right? If CNN is talking about it. Um, you know, so realize that, you know, depression just continues to exponentially increase right now. You know, about 25% of the American population, and again, this is an old statistic, it may have even more greatly declined, but again, we haven't been able to assess what's happened to the American population accurately since the COVID pandemic and the culturally traumatic events that happened from 2020 and are continuing, right? Because we're in ongoing culturally traumatic events throughout the world and, and people are uh, very agitated, but 25% of people say they have no one to confide in. That may have doubled. I have no idea. 
But we do know that the rates of suicide continue to go up exponentially on all levels. Okay. So you know, today I want to present, obviously, so depression's a real thing. People experience it, but I want to give you some perspective on multiple ways to address it without the use of medication if you're interested in it. And obviously, like if you have access to medication, you can tolerate it, you're open to it. Again, why would you not do it? So I'm not here to uh, dissuade you from it or to criticize those people who use them because that is not the point of this. But I want to give us some opportunities to kind of explore the, the you know, the, you know, maybe the, the other things that are out there. So here are the, the six things, and I, I'm greatly, uh, you know, uh, greatly uh, indebted to the work of Bill O'Hanlon, who I'm really taking these, these six dimensions from his work called Out of the Blue, which is a book that he wrote, I think, back in 2016. Um, and I've used this with my clients. I encourage you to share this stuff with people you know and love, especially since we're getting into a depressive season, um, the winter months. Have you ever wondered what the leading cause of divorce is? It's not addiction, infidelity, lack of intimacy, or incompatibility. It's actually criticism. Criticism underlies all the behaviors that lead to divorce. Criticism kills connection between married couples. If you want to learn ways to stop criticizing and start connecting with your spouse, check out heartsrenewed.org for dynamic exercises on how to shape new conversations with your spouse that will give you the kind of marriage you signed up for, all from the comfort of your home. So the, the first of the six is what, what I would call marbling. Now, if you've ever had a steak or a, a cut of meat, you're going to notice that within the, the, the slice of, of steak or, or cut of, of meat, there is pockets of fat. And a butcher will call that, you know, marbling. And like why we, we call it this is that, you know, intermixed with the experience of depression, right? People experience depressed, depressed states, right? Fatigue thoughts of death and being exhausted and, you know, different forms um, and, and all the misery that is depression. But there are times where they're not as depressed, right? There are times, you know, where they're just not as, as down. There are times where they are able to go to a party. There are times where they're not laying in bed or they're looking for work or they're down playing with their kids. And we want to draw our attention to those moments, those exceptions to when the depressive pattern is happening. And so just drawing the attention mindfully to that can help spark hope, help spark, you know, the interest that they can get better, the belief that they can get better and, you know, you know, increasing in a level of confidence. And for a lot of people, like that's a huge shift just to notice, well, well how come you're able to, you know, come down to dinner today? What gave you the interest to look for work or to finish your schoolwork. You know, I know you've been feeling terrible and t feeling lousy, but how did you show up here today? How'd you get to work? How'd you put yourself together? How'd you come into the office today? And looking for those, those, uh, those patterns where, you know, again, like they can be depressed and they can also have times when they're not as depressed or they're, and, and again, like getting the person to be aware of that other pattern. The weird part about depression is that when you're depressed, you really like talk about only the times and the worst parts of the day. And it's like you, you, there's a rumination, right? There's a repetition of what's wrong. 
over and over again. And so it's like a bad trance from like a hypnosis standpoint, right? They're, they're saying the same things over and over again. And so to interject other things, right, to make the record skip, so to speak, helps the brain to start to foster the beginnings of hope just by shifting the attention. We want to shift our attention away. If you're depressed and you're listening to this, there are times where you're not as depressed, maybe 1% better. Again, this is not this is not to, to sell to people that, you know, their depression isn't happening. It's just that there are other things happening as well. And so, like, you know, um, looking for these opportunities is a key, right? You know, looking for those opportunities where, you know, there, there, there's other things that can occur, right? So if you love somebody who's depressed or if you are the depressed person, it's helpful to start talking about things other than just the depression. If, you know, from positive psychology down in Penn State and the work of Martin Seligman and his colleagues over the last 25, 30 years, they had a, a exercise that I've given out many times and I've done it myself. You know, and really it is to activate this awareness of these these exception patterns. And it's called the three blessings. And you can do it today if you want. And and how you, it works is, you know, to write down every evening, like what are the three things that were good today and why? Really to activate optimism, to, to, to start to, you know, activate like a, a gratitude for the day. So three things that were good and why, right? Whether it's the weather or the fact that your kids were healthy, or the fact that you have enough money to pay your bills. And what were three things today that you did correctly, right? Maybe you took a shower, maybe you didn't blow up on your boss, maybe it is that you paid your taxes, but what are three things you did correctly? And then three things or three moments of joy. And joy is a choice, and for many people that is the hardest one, because joy joy is the, you know, is the ability to receive the present money, uh, to receive the present moment with love, right? So joy is the choice to receive the present moment with love. So it is a, a choice and oftentimes gratitude and that optimism and that confidence has to be present for us to have more joy psychologically. That's why, like, again, these three blessings, they grow. You, you start, you know, you do the best you can for those three things that were good, those three things you did correctly, and then again, those three moments of joy. And even if you don't do all of those those things, maybe you just choose the first one. Again, that showed a huge reduction in depressive symptoms just by, again, as we'll talk more and more about growing the brain in a different way, getting the brain to pay attention in a different way to what's correct. We don't have to be fixated on just what's wrong. So maybe you try that tonight, right? You know, start to see that there's more going on than just the problem, right? And there's many things going on in your life, right? So try the three blessings tonight or share that with somebody or a child or a friend or loved one. Now, the second thing is that we got to start thinking about depression as something that we do. So Milton Erickson, who was a psychiatrist in the beginning, you know, of maybe like the the turn of the century there, contemporary, a late contemporary of Freud, he had a case where he had a man who was severely depressed and he came to see him, couldn't get out of bed, couldn't do very much, just laid around, very unmotivated, just would lay in bed and want to die. And so the young man came to him, um, you know, and said that he was going to drop out of college because he just felt like he wasn't, it was just not going to be successful in any way. And so Erickson told the young man to go and be depressed at the library. And so the young man you know, went to the library and was depressed 
and periodically he would get bored and he would pick up different books and every day he would go there depressed walk down to the library and you know on one occasion while he was depressed looking through books he was you know uh you know a person as they normally come into the library came up to him and asked him if he'd ever read this book on caves right and the young man was came back to his appointment you know soon after to dr erickson and said like that he had met this person and they had talked he had made a friend and um they had had this conversation about like if he had ever read this book on caves and he had encouraged him to read this book right you know um this other student uh, encouraged him to read this book on caves because he thought it would be fun if the two of them would make make a date of it and go explore some of the caves that were around um you know the campus uh, around the uh, the area where they all lived and they did do that and slowly the young man um came out of the depression uh, you know com completely he had a friend and he had you know um had new experiences of traveling and going into these new things that he'd never expect to do and it seemed almost remarkable and when erickson was asked how did he know that the young man um needed to go to the library to be healed of his depression erickson said i i don't really you know I didn't know that he needed to go to the, the library, but I assumed that this pattern, right, depression is a pattern. And if he was going to, uh, you know, go someplace else, it would alter the pattern. And slowly, right, slowly that pattern would start to shift him away from the depression, right? Because people are patterns that persist. And so if we can disrupt one piece of the system, one piece of the pattern, things start to sh change in tandem. And I um, mean, he was right. So, um, you know, so when we think about undoing depression, um, one of the things I used to tell people and I get a kick out of this is I will, I will tell them like, you know, if I, if I'm going to be depressed, there are certain things that I'm going to do. I'm going to, you know, wear my pajamas all day. I'm going to go into my bedroom and I'm going to pull all the shades down and I'm going to not really talk to anybody. And if I do talk to people, I'm only going to talk about my problems and how terrible things are. And I'm only going to eat garbage food, nothing good, nothing nutritious. It's going to be high fat, high sugar, make me feel absolutely horrible. I'm going to watch TV shows that make me feel bad about myself or consume me with bad ideas or negativity. And I'm going to listen to music that is angry and depressing. Uh, I'm going to make sure that the light doesn't come into my room, that it stays as dark and as dimly lit as possible. And the only light that I see comes from my phone and the comparisons of uh, all, all these, you know, attractive or you know, you know, screwed up people on social media or whatever, and on and on and on and on. And usually by the time I go on this long soliloquy of like what I would do to make myself have a really good depression, because you know, I have a degree on this stuff, right? So I, I know how to do it correctly. People are laughing or at least smiling. I mean, I use humor in my practice. I'm, I'm not uh, a complete, uh, you know, you know, robot. But the thing is, is that depression is obviously something we feel, but there is a behavioral component. So by getting people to change the things that they control, right, to, to control the controllables, you know, you, you, you can't control how you feel and you can't control how you think, but you can control whether or not you get up and have breakfast. You can control whether or not you get up and maybe you go for a walk. And many times like these, these shifts of, of pattern and undoing depression are start at the lowest or smallest pay, smallest parts that a person can do, you know, but maybe they're going to change the way that they, maybe they're going to be depressed, but they're going to dress nicely. Maybe they're going to be depressed, but they're, they're going to, uh, you know, go for a walk. 
we want to like, again, no one's going to take away like the depression, but again, a lot of times it's the judgment and the judgment brings on the uh, rumination and the obsession to, you know, which keeps us in these patterns, but changing the little pieces, right? Changing the little pieces, because again, it, it kind of breaks us out of these patterns. And so think about what the depression looks like and think about if you were to undo it or to at least start to manipulate certain things, you know, um, I, I had years ago, I, I had a person who was quite depressed and one of the things that we did, which worked fantastically for them is we had an appointment and actually a couple appointments where we would do our appointments walking through a park locally. Obviously we didn't talk about, you know, uh, you know, intense things, but just the, the, the idea of being in nature and being out in public and being out of the home and walking around and seeing people, there's something about all that, that actually, uh, you know, you know, changes the way people feel. So, um, so look for the moments where you have any choice in your life, choice about clothes, choice about food, choice about where you're going to be going or whatever it is, you know, um, you know, the, the, the decision points, the points of choice will be incredibly useful. Okay. Um, because the patterns of doing the patterns of viewing that we get to see, those things will make a huge impact. Okay. The next component really has to do with changing the way that you relate to the depression. So a lot of people like, don't realize that the more that they judge an experience, it gets worse, right? I could be sad, but then if I hate being sad, I get depressed. If I hate being depressed, then I get suicidal, right? Judgment compounds the issue. It almost sticks it to us. So one of the big things with shifting the relationship with depression is being able to give yourself greater and greater awareness tools. So learning, you know, how to train the mind, right? You know, whether it's through uh, the practices of meditation, um, you know, you know, meditative prayer, uh, you know, I think, uh, uh, you know, Dr. Greg Bataro has a lot of work on Catholic mindfulness. I, I encourage people to, you know, uh, you know, look into that, you know, being able to notice the experiences you're having without judgment and noticing the variations of sensations and the thoughts, you know, that you have around the depression so that you don't, you can feel depressed, but you don't have to be depressed because remember being something means that you've attached a judgment and now you are um, neurologically bound up in it. So this practice of severing or shifting the relationship has to do with externalizing it so that it no longer controls you, right? And, and sometimes people can give it a name, right? And, and narrative therapy, like, is a huge component for this where, you know, the, you know, the, the, you know, the, the, you know, the depresso, I always use the word depresso land to kind of separate, you know, myself or other people from it, like, you know, so that we're not like, uh, you know, staying there, right? We're just visiting, you know, but some people give their depression a name so that they recognize it. Well, the depression was talking to me today and it wanted me to lay in bed, but I said no to my depression. You know what I mean? That, that, that shift gives us empowerment in, in, in uh, the, the research we call that neurocognitive reprogramming, where the brain essentially like can recognize the, you know, these patterns and it gives names and the names give the dominion over it. We get authority back so that even though these things are things we cannot control, we can actually resist them. We can resist them, or at least, you know, we can resist the, the increasing judgment that, that makes us lose control, right? 
And, you know, we, we stop resisting it all the time in the sense of trying to control it. Like, oh, I don't want to be depressed. I don't want because like I said, that just provokes more judgment. And so the meditation components help us to cultivate acceptance over our reality. And it's almost like quicksand. In quicksand, we have to accept that these things are happening, right? I'm going to feel crummy for a while. I remember when my dad died years ago, I woke up in bed one night and I told my wife, I said, you know, I, I said, like, I, I wish I could just start grieving. And she said to me, she said, but you have been. And I remember that very clearly to me, like this, this whole idea that I just, you know, this belief that like grief had to look like a certain thing, that this, that these experiences have to look very, you know, um, you know, you know, very, uh, very pointed. And, but we have to get rid of these expectations about how we're supposed to feel, how we're supposed to behave, what is it supposed to look like, and get rid of the judgment. And obviously the practices of prayer that people can take on, on are, are huge in terms of the, the practicality of this. You know, um, but, but again, like if you cannot train the mind, it's very hard to you know, start to let go of these things. Um, and, uh, you know, but, but it can be very powerful. Right. And again, like you look at like Lincoln, as I gave you the idea in the beginning, Lincoln suffered and was very grief stick stricken throughout his life, but he was incredibly compassionate to other people, people that their loved ones died in the war, people in his life, his family, because he, he had family members die. He had so much grief and yet he was always with people and a very, uh, you know, devout, uh, you know, uh, you know, devoted friend and confidant right? Because he understood how to make sense out of pain. And so instead of his depression or his melancholy being the thing that made him a whipping boy, it, it allowed him to be, be present um, and be able to be, uh, especially in, in the, the great suffering of other people. You see the same thing with uh, Mother Teresa of Calcutta. Her, her father died, right? As far as we know, he died alone. And that, that really traumatized her as a young girl. And she was very depressed in many ways over the course of her life. We know from her writings, and yet that 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 uh, that sadness, uh, you know, she used it to sensitize her to the suffering Christ in the world. Um, and but it, but it, but it, there was a different relationship. It wasn't oh woe was me. Why do I feel so bad? It was an invitation to meet Jesus outside in a profound loving way. And that's what happens when we get rid of the judgment. We start to we start to see and take in more information, and you know you know depression can be one of those things that can give people greater sensitivity to the needs of others, to be more compassionate. You know, I would think that you know the old saying was people that are in the field of therapy or counsel, whether it be a priest or social worker or a psychiatrist, if they have uh, you know integrated these experiences of suffering, hopefully they are. Um, able to be healers better in the sense that they are aware of their own hurts. Um, they don't. They don't need to even talk about them. They just need to be aware of them so they can be present with others. And so again, you know, challenge challenge the the relationship that you have with the depression. Make sure that it doesn't own you. Make sure that you you've stopped judging it. Now the the next one I would say is to uh, you know build connection and get rid of isolation right? Right now in America, we have huge houses and obviously we've been devastated by COVID both because people have died in our families, people have been hit financially, um, and people are cut off from their friends. I mean, on average, Americans only have two close friends 
And um, like I said, you know, I think about one in three households are run by a single parent that may have increased. Again, I don't know. But you think large homes, but nobody to be together with. On average, most people don't eat together as a family um, in America and Europe, especially in, in London. They get, they've gotten rid of the dining room furniture and, 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 and dining rooms in general and a lot of the, the floor planning because people don't eat together, right? So isolation, though, is a huge, huge thing because we know that isolation, I, I forget which, which uh, medical journal it was, that being isolated and being without people and being without connection is actually um, is bad for your health physically and mentally. It's actually, I think they said, worse than smoking, right? It's a worse health factor than smoking is. And again, you can look that up. The, the research is, is wild. And again, this is old research. This is prior to COVID. A lot of the stuff, um, you know, some of it is, is is up to date, but some of the stuff, again, uh, it's hard to get all the, the accurate stuff since COVID, but assume it's worse, not better, okay? Um, so we, we, we need to connect. We need to connect to people, um, you know, whether that's, you know, having a, a regular social cir- circle like a prayer or whether your kids are involved in sports, or whether you have a co-op, you you know, but you want to connect. You, you can connect to yourself, you know, spiritually, you know, your soul, your inner self. You can do that through reflection, writing. You can connect and build connection to the body and the sensations, like we said, through meditation or physical exercise. You can connect with other friends, you know, in the span of like a club or a group community like a church or a mosque or a, a temple, you know, or, or a self-help community. Um, you can connect through art, you know, through making art, sharing art. Music is a huge factor for people, um, building things, making things, um, you know, connect to nature, something, you know, you know, something outside. And also like this, this, uh, you know, connect to, to bigger meaning and purpose. Like I said, you know, Lincoln didn't kill himself because he believed he was here to do something, to leave a legacy. His life mattered, right? And so that's a huge component. Now, now the next part right here, number five, is to connect us back to a future with possibilities. Something awaits us after this. And so we need to be able to recognize that when people are depressed, like a lot of times people's minds collapse, you know, about what's going to happen in the future. You see this with kids, you see this with adults. And we want to reconnect people with uh with, with their future, right? And, and the possibilities of the future. And oftentimes it has to do with really starting with, well, what have you achieved today? You know, what is the stuff that you've already been doing? The smallest signs of hope, right? And, and sometimes it's helpful for us to read about people who have gone through hardships, read about people who've gone through depressions and overcome them, because then we see possibilities in other people. Seeing possibilities in other people can be a huge, huge asset, right? Um, you know, and, and and just realizing that, you know, in the future, right? Sometimes you, you got to think about that this moment will, will be gone, right? Um, you know, in terms of, you know, three years from now, where would, what would you like to be doing? Sometimes it's hard for people to think about because they're so depressed. But once people start to rebuild their confidence, they can start thinking about that. What would their future self want them to do? And, uh, you know, um, you know, you know, they've already overcome the depression. If you've already overcome this, what would you be, you know, what would you, what your future self want you to do? And maybe your future self would want you to go to the gym. Maybe they get up and pray, you know, but, but start thinking about that. 
you know, start thinking about the fact that something awaits you after this, that life isn't just limited. But, but if that's super hard, right, to connect to a future with possibilities, we start with the signs of hope on, on, on the daily, right? The, what are the things, again, that you did correctly today that are on track with the person that you want to be? What are the things that you did today that are consistent with the person who is getting better? Well, I showered. I showed up for my appointment. I went to church. I got out of bed. You know, I helped my spouse with this. I went to class, whatever it is. Again, it goes back to that, you know, um, because the, the future, the future can help us, you know, pull ourselves through. And once we can kind of visualize the future, then a lot of, a lot of things get easier. Then we know we're coming out, you know, and a lot of times like that, that's hard to get to that point though. It's hard to get to a point where we, we kind of feel that way. Um, so make sure that we are, you know, you know, seeing what we're doing correctly and also having uh, that, that, that plan for the future. Like what, what is it going to look like when I overcome this depression? You know, you know, because the, you know, that, that, that future will give us hope. So one of the ways that you can continue to expand on this is to start making plans, maybe once a week or once a day, whatever is realistic. So you have something small to look forward to, whether it's dinner with friends or coffee or special treat or a movie that you like, um, and really just, you know, to, to have something to look forward to, something small, something realistic to your situation and state in life. So the sixth thing that we can do that's non-medication related is to really restart the brain's natural ability to grow. Now, when people are depressed, um, there's a lot of cortisol in the mind. People have been through a lot of stress, whether it's from grief or traumatization or, uh, or maybe even an illness or whatnot, right? So the, the mind... Um, it's, it's, it, it, it's normal process of generating new brain cells for the most part, um, can be arrested. So in the case of somebody who's been physically abused or been in, in solitary confinement, both the isolation of solitary confinement and also physical abuse will reflect into a, in a, in a, in a, in a MRI and a, and a CT scan, like, uh, there'll be like large holes. Why? Well, cause the brain is not producing um, new connections because it's so stressed out and you figure if you're in a terrible situation, you don't want to really be present in that situation. So you're, you, you have large gaps of attention and obviously you're, you're functioning at the lowest parts of the brain, which are for survival, right? Survival so you can get through the abuse, survival so that you can get through the day and continue to eat. And so a lot of the, uh, the other parts of the brain growth, right, they, they aren't going to happen. You know, while you're under that much stress, you're not going to probably read a book. You're not probably going to be able to make connection in the, in the process of being in solitary confinement. You can't do that. So the brain doesn't grow. And so one of the, the things that has been very fascinating is this neurogenesis. So what neurogenesis is, is it essentially it, it alludes to the fact that the brain continues to grow and develop over the span of a person's life. And certain things make the brain grow. So um, it, you know, I'll give you an example from a study um, at Duke. It's called the SMILE study, which stands for Standard Medication Intervention um, Alongside or Versus you know, um, Long-Term Exercise, right? So SMILE, Standard Medication Intervention Long-Term Exercise. And, and they, they had three, three parts to this study. The one, all of these people had depression, right? And one group of the people, they were treated with exercise and traditional antidepressants in the form of Zoloft, <coughs> which is an antidepressant medication. Um, 
and pretty heavily used, I would say, pretty standard. Um, the second group, the second control group, was, was some uh, was it was a group that was given, um, you know, um, you know, so they were medication, you know, and and, and uh, exercise, right? And then the the third group was just exercise, right? So just physical exercise. Now, when they followed up, you know, so after about like you know three four months, everybody in the in the in the in the different groups had made marketable imp- improvement, probably about you know, 60, 70% improvement uh, of their depressive symptoms, regardless of, you know, whether they did the exercise, whether they did exercise and medication, or they did the Zoloft. Now, when they followed up 10 months later, the recurrence of, of depression was super interesting. In the case of people who were doing medication and um, exercise, they, they, would, they had a recurrence of depression of about, you know, 31%. Um, medication alone was uh, 38%. And then exercise alone, this is the fascinating part. The people who only did exercise, but they were consistent about exercise after 10 months, there was only an 8% recurrence, right? So that's, that's, that's no medication, that's exercise alone. But what exercise does is it stimulates better blood flow and movement and better blood flow. If you think about it from like, if you were a gardener, it's like water for plants and blood is obviously going to stimulate um, you know, more of this birth of more neurocells in the brain, in the hippocampus. So better blood flow, less depression. And we see that recurrently in all of the research. Super fascinating. If you look at exercise and rates of depression, right? Um, and, you know, a lot of doctors and, and people in, in practice will see that. And, and so, again, getting people to move, getting people to play instruments is another thing, right? You know, learning learning musical instruments is huge for people to develop their brain and for the brain to grow. And remember, as the brain grows, the brain becomes less depressed, right? Because we're 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 generating new cells, new connections, and again, like the person feels more confident. And and again, these these patterns of depression, you know, since attention is life, this attention has been focused away from the self. It's been focused away from the symptom pattern and onto something else. And that blood flow has generated new neurons, new neural connections, and we're carving out a different pattern. So we, we don't want to, just like we don't want to groove the brain with language that we just talk about problems all the time, whether it's the depressive symptoms or the bad things, we also don't want to groove the mind by just keeping the person sedentary. Think about it. depressed people, they move less and less and they become more and more negative. So the more we can get ourselves active if we're depressed, outside, going for a walk, if you can do physical you know, exercise or Pilates or you want to do whatever it is that's going to activate your body systems and your senses, again, it's going to you know draw blood into different places, reactivate that hippocampus, and then you're going to have neuro, neurogenesis, right? More neural connections. And I encourage people to just look at that again. I mean, there's so many different ways that the mind heals. Um, so, so hopefully this is helpful for you. Um, and keep sending me your questions. And, uh, this was in in part, uh, a response to a question about depression. Hopefully it gives you some useful ideas, uh, to employ, um, or your, your family's friends to employ at this time. But, Um, I I wish you well and go out and smuggle some hope wherever you can. I hope you've enjoyed today's episode of Smuggling Hope. If you want to maximize the impact of the podcast you just listened to, 
Try to find one thing that you thought was helpful and teach and share it with somebody in your life. When you teach and share what you've learned, it stays with you, and it helps to internalize what we've learned and get that seed to grow. I hope that the seeds of hope continue to grow in your life.